0: I'm Seth Manukin. Thank you all for coming to this semester's final communications forum, a very special event that I could not be more excited about. Um, the two people who will be here uh, as part of the discussion uh, probably need no introduction, but I'll give a very brief introduction anyway. Um, and then we're structuring tonight's communications forum slightly differently than we often do. Uh, Jeff is going to start out with a, very, with a brief reading um, from Annihilation. No, from Authority, right. Uh, from, uh, from the middle of the three books in the trilogy. Uh, then we will have a, our discussion and then we will open it up for your discussion. Um, there are also books on sale, all three books in the trilogy. Uh, as well as um, the Area X Omnibus, uh, all three books combined into one, um, are on sale from your local independent bookstore, Harvard Bookstore, right outside. Um, so, uh, all the way to my left, uh, Jeff Vandermeer published all three books in the best-selling Southern Reach trilogy in 2014. Um, he is a widely acclaimed master and proponent of weird fiction, uh, and is the author of a frighteningly large number of books. Um, I actually found it depressingly large. It made me feel like I must be doing something wrong, um, including uh, the best-selling uh, City of Saints and Madmen*, Men, um, which is one of the foundational works for his Ambergris um, uh, world, I guess. Um, He's written uh, about many of the issues contained uh, within the Southern Reach trilogy for publications including the New York Times um, and the Atlantic uh, and the movie version um, of the first book in the trilogy, Annihilation, is moving apace with uh, Paramount. Um, Eric Schaller is a professor in biological sciences and the molecular and cellular biology graduate program at Dartmouth. Um, His scientific research focuses on the roles played by plant hormones in their relation to real-world agricultural problems, um, such as the control of ripening and senescence. Uh, He is also an artist and has illustrated several of Jeff's works, um, Jeff and Eric actually met when, uh, Eric submitted a, a piece to an anthology, is this right, that Jeff rejected, um, uh, but in rejecting it, in rejecting it, sent it back with copious edits, um, uh, which, uh, is either, which is either very, very giving or, or, or very obnoxious, I'm not sure one or the other, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, they, they have collaborated many times over the years, um, and uh, in addition to collaborating with their artwork and, and fiction, um, Eric serves as a uh, sounding board for some of the scientific themes that Jeff writes about. So without further ado, I will hand it over to Jeff.
1: Good afternoon and evening. Um, <laughs> First of all, thanks to Seth and to Eric at MIT and for you for coming out. Uh, thanks to uh, Harvard Square for selling the books. The slideshow uh, kind of represents uh, what you might call research for the Southern Reach books. All of the nature slides you're seeing are are, obvious, are are taken by me, and they're places that are either I'm either very familiar with or I've visited several times. And uh, one thing I wanted with these books, since they did have nature themes, uh, is to not have any secondhand detail in them. So every nature detail in there is uh, something that I've observed firsthand. Uh, Also for the reading I'm gonna do, you can consider what you're seeing to be basically the landscape the two characters are passing through because they're actually like riding in a Jeep and I'm sparing you all of the description that would normally be in this section. (laughs) Um, Some of these might also be considered um, the thoughts and very weird thoughts or ideas uh, that control uh, the main character I'm gonna talk about uh, encounters. Now, the Southern Reef Trilogy describes the 30-year effort of a secret government agency to figure out the secrets behind Area X, which is an odd pristine wilderness hidden behind an invisible border that appeared seemingly overnight. And this gave me. Although there's a lot of stuff that kind of came to me, came to my subconscious, and that it's expressed through the text because of my love of particular types of wilderness, there are also some ideas and themes that I explicitly decided to deal with in the books. And one of those was using the uncanny to address ecological issues. Another was to question the rationality of our systems, uh, having existed under the thumb of some of those systems in in working as a contractor for various state and federal organizations. Um, interrogating the relationship between technology and wisdom or thought. Uh, Recently, there was a high-level Silicon Valley executive who said that creating AI was, quote, infinitely more difficult than something like creating an ecosystem. And it struck me as a really ignorant thing to say, given that we've never actually built a truly complex ecosystem from scratch. We're continually propping up, preserving, or restoring existing ecosystems and then also to interrogate the scientific imagination in both a positive and negative way. On the negative side, a senior scientist at SETI recently said in an interview, basically the aliens would want to kill us or would want to save us, based on his reading of human history. So how do we get beyond the human gaze uh, in useful ways to imagine kind of a new paradigm on some of these issues? And I also wanted to examine the role of animals in fiction, and our view of animals, um, because animals still exist as inert objects in our imaginations in the wider world and in fiction. And so in a sense, they're lost narratives in a fictional context. So as I mentioned, strange things are happening in Area X, and after a decade of flat-out failure in figuring out what's going on, the southern, Southern Reach brings in a new director nicknamed Control to clean shop. And as told in the second novel, Authority, control has to first assess morale, especially of the scientists at the agency, and figure out how to proceed. And so in the excerpt I'm going to read, he's in a jeep about to go to the invisible border, having a conversation with Cheney, the head of the Southern Reach's uh, science division. And as mentioned, I'm sparing you the physical description, and instead you get this, this lovely uh, overlay in the back. If you quacked like a scientist and waddled like a scientist, soon to non-scientists, you became the subject under discussion and not a person at all. Some scientists lived within this role, almost embraced it, transformed into walking theses or textbooks. This couldn't be said about Cheney, though, despite lapses into jargon like quantum entanglements. Cheney talking about 30 years of failure. There's a lot of enabling of each other's shittery, That's almost all we've got. Cheney on ignorance, we don't even understand how every organism on our planet works, haven't yet identified them all, what if we don't have the language for it? Are we obsolete? I think not, I think not, but don't ask the army's opinion of that. A circle looks at a square and sees a badly drawn circle. Cheney exasperated, yeah, it's something we think about, how do you know if something is out of the ordinary when you don't know if your instruments would even register it? I guess it's kind of strange to practically live next to this, I guess I could say that. But then you go home, and you're home. Then just the general babble. Do you know any physics? No, of course you don't. How could you? Black holes and waves have a similar structure, you know, very, very similar as it turns out. Who would have expected that? I mean, you'd expect Area X to cooperate at least a little bit, right? I'd have staked my reputation on it, cooperating with us enough to get some accurate readings. Later, a refinement of this stain- statement. There is some agreement among us now, reduced though we may, be, we may be, that to analyze certain things, an object must allow itself to be analyzed to agree with it, even if this is just simply by way of some response, some reaction. These last two utterances, jostling elbows, Cheney offered up a bit plaintively because, in fact, he had staked his reputation to Area X in the general sense that the Southern Reach had become his career. The initial glory of it of being chosen and then the constriction of it like a great snake named area x was suffocating him it was suffocating control too especially after the briefing that morning an ice pick lodged in a brain already suffused with the corona of a dull but persistent headache that radiated forward from a throbbing bolus at the back of his skull a kind of pulsating satellite defense shield He thought of the theories presented to him as slow death by, given the context, slow death by aliens, slow death by parallel universe, slow death by malign unknown time-traveling force, slow death by invasion from an alternate earth, slow death by wildly divergent technology or the shadow biosphere or symbiosis or iconography or etymology, death by this and by that, death by indifference and inference, his favorite, surface-dwelling terrestrial organism previously unknown hiding where all of these years, in a lake, on a farm, at slots, in a casino? But he recognized his bottled-up laughter during the briefing for the onset of hysteria, and his cynicism for what it was, a defense mechanism so he wouldn't have to think about any of it. Death, too, by arched eyebrow, a fair amount of implied or outright, your theory is ridiculous, unwarranted, useless, some of the ghosts of old interdepartmental rivalries resurrected and coming through in odd ways across sentences. He wondered how much fraternization had taken place over the years, if an archaeologist's written wince at an environmental scientist's seemingly reasonable assertion represented a fair opinion or meant he was seeing an endgame playing out, the final consequence of an affair that had occurred 20 years before. So by the time Cheney was throwing words at control, the rumors about area x had come to seem like schools of the most deadly and let yet voluminous jellyfish at the aquarium as you watch them in their undulating progress they seem both real and unreal framed against the stark blue of the water how do you feel about all the misinformation given to the expedition's control asked cheney if only to push back against the flood of cheneyisms Cheney's frown made it seem as if Control's question were akin to criticizing the paint job on a car that had been involved in a terrible accident. Was Control a killjoy to want to snuff out Cheney's can-do, his can't-help-it brand of the jowly jovial? But jovial grated on Control most of the time. It had always been a pretext from the high school football team's locker room on, the kind of hearty banter that covered up greater and lesser crimes. It wasn't, isn't really misinformation, Cheney said and then went dark for a moment searching for words. Possibly he thought it was a test of loyalty or attitude or moral rigor, but he found words soon enough. It's more like creating a story or a narrative to guide them through the narrows, an anchor, a scientific fairy tale. Like a genial lighthouse that distracted them from the horrors of topographical anomalies, a lighthouse that seemed by its very function to provide safety. Maybe Cheney told himself that particular story about the tale or tale about the story But Control doubted the director had seen it that way. "'Jesus, this is a long drive,' Cheney said into the silence. And Jesus Christ it was. And rising up through sedimentary levels in Control's mind like a ghostly colacanth, a former boss asking, "'Is your house in order? Is your house in order? Tell me, please. Is your house in order?' Was his house in order? Not until he cornered Cheney. He asked Cheney point-blank if he'd ever seen anything unusual lurking in the southern reach. But Cheney flunked the question, replied in a stilted, hurt tone. Well, it's the high ceilings, isn't it? Makes you see things, aren't there? Makes the things you do see look like other things. A bird can be a bat. A bat can be a piece of floating plastic bag. Way of the world to see things as other things. Bird leaves, bat birds, shadows made of lights. Sounds that are incidental but seem more significant. It's never going to seem any different wherever you go. A bird can be a bat. A bat can be a piece of floating plastic bag, but could it? Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, having, uh, having gotten to the end of the trilogy, those high ceilings seem much more <laughs> ominous um, than they might in that section initially. Um, uh, I thought it was interesting that that you you chose that um, that section, and it's one of the places where you talk about um, sort of the reality of life as a scientist and how uh, they oftentimes need to deal with forces that um, might be in conflict with their actually doing their science, whether it's bureaucracies or um, job constraints or personal issues. Um, and I was wondering where you uh, um, sort of got that sense, how you, how you um, decided that you were going to give the scientists that you write about that reality to deal
1: with. Well, um, I'm, I'm very cognizant, of course, about the cliches about scientists, and I didn't want to buy into them at the same time i was envisioning an agency that had basically failed at its task and been kind of consigned to a backwater and having worked for companies or gone into agencies like that i I know what the feeling is and how it actually affects the research how how it affects the attitude the morale and everything else and uh, also having seen my father uh, who's an entomologist and research chemist um, you know pursue in a very methodical and, and wonderfully methodical way his research, but then also have all these impediments, <laughs> all of these, these cliques around him and everything else that he has to deal with, uh, it struck me that if you want to talk about scientists and science, you have to talk about the constraints uh, as well as the research.
0: And, and so when you say uh, um, you've dealt with agencies, you've worked at and, and come across agencies like that, and what, what, what are some examples of that?
1: Um, Well, I mean, they would fall into the same category as uh, uh, the reports you've heard about the IRS or the Veterans Administration. I I really can't talk about specifics, but you go into (laughs) a place where there are sedimentary layers of technology. um, There are clear battle lines drawn between different groups and subgroups within within an agency, and you begin to wonder about that whole idea of best practices, <laughs> and you begin to wonder about the rationality of our systems, um, which is something that fascinated me in talking about this, in, in creating this, 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 anth- this trilogy, because in addition to wanting to make some commentary on kind of the slow apocalypse we're in, I wanted to kind of examine the foundations of our thinking about just how rational we are as human beings. And to me, the irrationality comes through most often when, there's a, when you enter a dysfunctional uh, agency. Uh, and that made me think, well, what is actually the, the, the baseline of rationality for a well-functioning agency? Because we also codify a lot of practices, even in places that are successful, that are not really part of that success, and we don't always recognize that.
0: So, the two of you have collaborated, and we can show some examples of, of, um, of the artwork that has illustrated some of Jeff's work uh, in a bit. But you've collaborated not only in that sense, but sort of with behind the scenes conversations uh, as part of the publication process or, or the writing process, I guess. What, what happens there? What's that like? Um.
2: Well, I wouldn't call it collaboration as such. Um, Sometimes it's more of a sounding board um, for various elements. I'd say Southern Reach. Jeff uh, talked, sent me an email initially and was sort of giving me, without any uh, text really surrounding of the actual story, but just the situation of a scientist being presented with this basically force-fielded contained area and how would I, as a scientist, want to approach studying this or investigating it?
1: Yeah, and um, I actually sent that—I sent the basic parameters of the situation in, in the, that that is area X in, in the southern reach to four or five scientists. Eric's actually the only one who gave me the the most feedback, uh, to be honest, um, from a lot of different perspectives. And the reason that I that I wanted that. Uh, I wanted, first of all, a scientist to encounter it without any additional context because I thought that was the purest way. Uh, and then, you
0: mean, Do you mean without any additional context about the book, about the work About itself? the book or anything
1: else. Just like right. what would happen if you encountered this circumstance and you had to test what this meant? And uh, I thought additional context would actually kind of ruin the experiment, so to speak. Uh, but then what I had from Eric was a baseline of what you would reasonably expect... Uh, a scientific investigation of such a phenomena to be. And since I knew I wasn't doing that, that's not what really got into the book, but it gave me an idea of what should happen so I could portray what happens when it doesn't go well. (laughs) Um, And also to kind of forestall some of those questions. And the part I read was actually kind of a joke about that too, because in so many science fiction books, they kind of withhold the theory <laughs> until the end, and I thought, well, why not in the middle of the second book, just put forth every possible theory about what this thing could be, and just get it out of the way because that's not really even that important. Uh, and so, and so that's that's part of what was going on in that section too.
0: It, it's interesting that. Um, uh in your work, which in, on many levels is so fantastical, I mean, you have a, a, a biologist who um, transforms into a giant, uh, uh, a giant into tree, a we'll say, tree, non-human, uh, very powerful, multi-eyed something, tree. Um, tree. Uh, um, you know, you, you, you have this underground um, tower, depending on how you want to refer to it, it's and, a tunnel. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, and uh so 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 there there are these elements that are so clearly divorced from what we know as part of the reality of our experience and so how do you then and and yet at the same time it seems like um accurately representing uh not only the 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 scientific experience but within the confines of your world accurately representing what might be possible there seems like something that's important to you and that strikes me as a really interesting kind of line
1: well i mean it does go back to the rationality thing i just i just have much different view than i guess most people do about the rationality of the human world um, but even the tunnel, tunnel, tower thing is more has more of an underpinning in reality. Because if you examine transcripts of people under stress in emergency situations, they say really stupid things and they say really <laughs> bizarre things and they don't actually say what they say in movies, like you know, hey, we're going to get that axe out of the out of there and we're going to chop this door down. You know, they they have tower tunnel discussions a fair amount of the time uh, because they're under stress and under s- extreme uh, conditions. So um, that's what I why I say about what I do about the rationality because. I think we construct these stories or these myths about just how logical everything is that we do. But if we actually were to examine the videotape, so to speak, we, we, we might get a different opinion about that.
0: It's, it's interesting. It almost sounds like um, when, after we go through something, we rewrite the narrative in our heads so that yeah. we're much more heroic. And, uh, and it sounds like you, you want to portray the reality before we rewrite the narrative in our I heads. Wanna, I want to
1: explore that. Um, And and that's why I was actually very nervous when Eric uh, read the books afterwards, because (laughs) I was like, have I gone too far? Is he going to, you know, I mean, Eric's a huge reader of fiction, including science fiction and fantasy. So he's, he's he's he can vet it on that level, too. But also Eric's reaction as a scientist meant a lot to me. And so I for a long time never didn't even really ask Eric what he thought of various of the books because I was kind of scared
0: were were you ever tempted to um to to return the favor that he did when you submitted something and just write back and say this is horrible let me show you what you need to do here and
2: usually engage in discussions Uh, (laughs) no I mean it's usually Jeff querying me about some idea or element I mean another phone call we had a long one about mimicry
1: Oh right, I forgot about that. So. Yeah, yeah. So Mimicry the, in, in, yeah. in in the biological world. Yeah, yeah which right. is also yeah, which is right. a huge thing. And There's actually all kinds of Easter eggs about that in in the whole the whole series. Now but, I need to
0: reread yeah. the whole. That's great. Mm-hmm.
1: But what did you think? I mean, what you know, were, were there things that jumped jumped out at you as as something that was not an acceptable, you well, know?
2: Well, what I in terms of science fiction, I'm usually not. I'm only usually judging science if, in some ways, the fiction is interrogating the science. Mm. So if They, if I see, they're really misusing science when they want to say something about the science.
0: Hmm. What's an example of that?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I'll I'll give two areas that I think. Well, I'll mention Kim Stanley Robinson. I think does a terrific Mm -hmm. job in how he incorporates science into his science fiction. He wrote Twenty Three Twelve, which came out, and a whole bunch of California trilogy. And he does a very strong ecological basis to his uh, science fiction. Um, the pet peeve I have is, what I always bring up, is Paolo Bacicolupi's The Wind-Up Girl, which is in many ways is about genetics and how potential dangers of genetic engineering. But on the other hand, he consistently makes mistakes in sort of his creations. Um, I mean. The, pet example I use, and actually pet's a good choice of words, is he uh, <laughs> has what he calls the Cheshires in it. Right. In which he comes up with, to my mate, a brilliant visual idea, is that there's these cats that by genetic engineering can become basically transparent or blended by camouflage like a chameleon into the landscape. Um, but then he, which is serving the idea, but won't get all the science, how difficult that is. Um, but again, it was a brilliant visual idea. But then he says something which doesn't make any sense at all. Is he first? He says there's basically about a dozen of these were made by some business executive as party favors for his uh, daughter and some mm-hmm. friends. Mm-hmm. So basically, you get a dozen of these genetically modified cats. And then he says, within twenty years, no real cats existed. That somehow these invisible cats had taken over. Had taken out millions of other cats when there's actually no <laughs> basis for them even, like, seeking out other cats to kill them. Mm-hmm. And even if they were bent on destruction of every other cat in the world in one generation, you cannot do that. Um, <laughs> that's a, that's and that's a, what it's, you it's, couldn't it's, get past. Right. So you were
0: fine with the Cheshire cat as it existed well, most, by Well There's itself. other,
2: there's <laughs> other <laughs> scientific problems with that. We won't get into that. Right. <laughs> um, No, it's what I also talk about with other friends is the idea of coherence of technology. Right. So again, if you're thinking of, and I think mundane fiction or near future world Mm -hmm. fiction is some of the hardest to pull off in that respect, because you really are bounded by the science Mm -hmm. of today and extrapolating forward. Um, So in one case, say, the Cheshires are really a tremendously difficult genetic feat, so once you postulate their existence, you have to say that rest of the genetic science is at equal caliber. Right. And in that case, so, it is
0: so, so you can't have that, and then have everything else exist at a much, is, at much
2: che- yeah. ch- cheaper level. I mean, right, right now we right. can sequence the human genome for a couple thousand dollars. Right. So in the near future, you're looking at hundred dollars per genome. So you have to be able to assume at that level of technology.
1: Yeah. And and that's definitely not the level of detail that I was <laughs> working at in the Southern region. Exactly. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Right. <laughs> so, um, although I will say that uh, I'm aware of certain simplifications that could be seen as negative. Like, for example, because I was layering, layer, layering in so much other stuff, I decided to just totally not deal with the, the role that corporations have in the environment and everything else. I basically let the government stand in for that. And I had to do that because I was juggling too many elements for that to, to work. But you could say that that means that the Southern Reach is a form of escapism because it's not dealing with that issue. Um, And then there were other ways, and I was just reacting. The Cheshire Cat thing struck me as funny, because a lot of the things in the Southern Reach are reactions to another kind of form of misrepresentation or, or counterfactual information, and that is descriptions of animals. And so in what I read about the bats looking like plastic bags, that was kind of also a sarcastic comment on a novel I'd read the year before, where someone kept describing vultures as looking like plastic bags as they were, you know... Flying around, which struck me as a really stupid thing to say, and and um, and another one where uh, another novel where porcupines uh, basically chase people around, uh, which doesn't really happen, and things like that. So um, so there's right. some, some things right. pushing back against uh, you know.
2: Yeah. I'll interject one thing yeah. here. Yeah. So my wife Paulette and I, when we drive along, we tend to count hawks. But mm-hmm. We also count what we call roosting bags mm-hmm. and trees. Okay. But you you do (laughs) differentiate between them. You do find (laughs) bags and trees all the time.
0: So so the idea that a porcupine would chase a human bothers you, but the idea that you could um, run into an invisible force field and then disappear instantaneously (laughs) is acceptable.
1: They bother me in different ways. um. Right, right.
0: (laughs) <laughs> All right, um, so, so you, you said that um, uh, because you don't deal with corporations that one could accuse uh, Southern Reach as being a form of escapism, yeah. which struck me as an interesting choice of words because in some ways um, that's a very fundamental uh, uh, um, function that fiction serves, that, that literature and art serve as, as um, both as a way for us to interrogate the world around yeah. us, um, interrogate our own relationship, but also to escape from the world around us.
1: Well, I'm kind of a grumpy curmudgeon on this subject, I'm afraid, because I'm, I'm really sick of uh, near-future novels set like 30 years from now where all but 2% of the population is gone and there's like some weird cloud formations. But otherwise, everything's fine in terms of global warming. Um, and I, find, I, I just feel like this is the kind of ex- fiction that's going to go extinct, whether it's, uh, you know, whether you like escapism or not you know, literally in the next 15 years because there's, there's something about, I just, I just rebel against escapism about a subject that's, that we're in the middle of <laughs> and that is, that, is, that is so important. And it's not that I think that it can only be dealt with in a serious way, but I do think that if you, you do have at this point a responsibility to, even if you're writing something surreal, have some kind of logic and some kind of level of detail that 's real some some form of realism
0: so if you're if you're writing a space opera that 's one thing, but if you 're writing about an earth and the way that it 's been affected by forces that are in play now, global warming, extinction events et etc there 's a different obligation
1: I, I think so and and and, and i 'm perfectly fine with someone saying that 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 they think that i 'm a little bit too uh, uh, too much uh, j- j- just being too, too uh I don't know what the word is about that evangelical about it which uh, is a word I hate but um but I think I, th- I think it's just that I don't see the I don't see certain novels as displaying any thought about the issue if they thought about it and the, their 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 stance was to not deal with it but in fact it just seems like it's not being thought of at all and then you know you look to books like Submergence by J.G. Uh, I can't remember his first name, but Ledger, um, which is not a science fiction book, right. uh, but has a lot of science in it, uh, deep-sea science and whatnot, that to me feels more like a book of the times than some science fiction I've read on the subject. So, on, on,
0: on, on what subject?
1: On the subject of global warming right, and right, the slow right, apocalypse. Right.
0: So, so you're, 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 you're both readers, um, avid readers of, uh, of fiction, um, of science fiction of fantasy. Um, and fantasy, uh, and the the issue of near future fiction has come up a lot. Um, and one thing that seems like it's it's going on in the larger um, fiction world is that these events um, and discussions that had been the realm of science fiction, sort of exclusively, have now entered into uh, or, or have left that. Um, that ghetto to the extent that, that they were ghettoized there. Um, is that something that you have found to be true? And, and if so, how does that affect uh, the whole notion of genres and the whole notion of science fiction as something that's distinct from non-science fiction?
1: Well, I think because we're in the middle of uh, global warming, it means that any fiction writer can, can deal with the subject. Um, and it's, it's kind of telling that I was at the Sonic Acts uh, Geologic Imagination Festival in, um, in Amsterdam in February, and there were a lot of philosophers and scientists there, and their only touchstones in science fiction were Kim Stanley Robinson and uh, Margaret Atwood and J.G. Ballard. Um, so I think that there is stuff that's being written, but the question of whether it's actually getting into the popular imagination or into the technical imagination, I don't know because the Ballard stuff that they were referencing of course was from the 70s, so that's, that's a long time ago. Um, but I, I, I was just also at the University of Buffalo and there, um, that's all they were talking about. All of the, um, the writers who uh, were there were, were not science fiction writers, they were all writing contemporary literature and pretty much all they were focusing on was that. And so I kind of feel like it's beginning to kind of leak into everything we write to some extent. Um, although I don't think there's an obligation that it, that it has to. That it has to leak into, into all yeah, things. Yeah, like right. um, uh, Elena Ferrante. I don't expect her to start writing about global warming. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know, it's like, and I love those books. So.
0: And, and what about, um, we, we, we talked about um, Roberto Bolaño and how we're both fans of his and some of his work uh, is also near future work that does not deal with some of these big questions. In the same way that Eric, it, it offends you, and it seems like, Jeff, it also bothers you when, um, when, when writers write about a world and they posit some changes and then they're not consistent with that. Um, uh, after we were talking about Bologna, I was thinking, well, what about the fact that he's writing about a near-future world that is not affected by global warming in any appreciable way? In what work? utter silence. Um, uh, uh, so in, in, in the same way that you seem to feel that there's an obligation if you're dealing with the near future and with global warming, you need to deal with it consistently. Um, is there an obligation if you're dealing with the near future at all to deal with the realities of our world, to deal with the fact that we're going to be living in a different
1: world? I don't know that there's an obligation. I, I think that more and more people, readers are going to feel that certain novels more or less, need, may have needed to have thought about the issue. I, I don't think that it, it's something that you that's that a cut and dried thing. I just think more and more you're going to see it in the backdrop right. of more contemporary fiction. Right. Because it, it's, it's creeping up on, on us in a way that you can't really get away from anymore. Right. right.
2: So, but part of the idea, is I think, yeah. even the idea of a slow apocalypse is often it's so gradual yeah. that while you're in it you're only sort of blinded on both yeah. sides by the sort of uh, memory where you went back a little ways, mm-hmm. you don't have enough of a perspective while you're in yeah. it often to recognize that there has been a significant
0: change that, over time. it's the frog in the pot yeah, of water? Exactly. Well, I
1: mean, that's, that's a good example. I mean, I look at, uh, like, look at Terrence Malick's uh, New World movie. Um, if that was an accurate movie, it would just be teeming with wildlife. <laughs> um, but we pretend that it's an accurate movie <laughs> um, because it reflects the landscape that, you know, he shot it now. <laughs> he couldn't go mm-hmm. back in time and, and fill the entire, you know, uh, shots with, with uh, a lot more wildlife. But in actual fact, if you look at any first, uh, you know, actual eyewitness accounts from back then, um, it would have been a different landscape you would have been looking at. And so we kind of trick ourselves, like you were saying, into the idea that it was always like this.
0: Um. Uh, I, want, I want to. I do want to get into the your, your artwork in a second. So, um, but before we do that, uh, one thing that that I felt like came up in the trilogy was, um, was a sort of attack on this notion that we've discovered what there is to discover about our world, that we have um, sort of uh, mastered, at least in knowledge, the world in which we live in. Um, uh, and when we were talking before this, you, you said that one of the reasons why you were attacking that was because it gives people the idea that we have more control over our environment than we, than we do. Um, I, that struck me as very interesting because your fiction, um, uh, you know, talking about this, talking about the Ambergris books, mm-hmm. um, you actually do have total control over your worlds. You create. It's not you don't that's, you don't, that's you, don't what you think you don't do <laughs> well. You don't do one-offs. Um, uh, you you know create worlds where um, then the two of you have uh, create a chapbook. Yeah. Um, uh, under assumed <laughs> names of people who visited Ambergris and uh, or visited that world, and you you know you sell them with mushrooms, and uh, um, so uh, uh, the, it just struck me as interesting that you were pushing back against that notion in your fiction. That sounds but then, so
1: disreput- disreputable yes. when you're when you're selling mushrooms and uh, mushrooms. And, and, mushroom and, 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 and Yelp
0: Yelp uh, Yelp guides to safe houses. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, but, but is that something that you've, you've, you've thought about? Is that, um, is your sort of desire for that level of control, um, a reaction all to the world that we do live in?
1: Um, it's, it's funny because I think area X actually came, came out of some form of that because, uh, the Gulf oil spill was something that was very, very personal. To anyone who was living on the Gulf coast and, and as the oil was gushing out, it was gushing out and, in our heads and our minds basically. And for a while there, it looked like it wasn't going to actually ever be capped. So there was this nightmare scenario of the idea of just going on for 20 years. And I really do think that on some subconscious level that eventually my mind just decided to put an invisible border around North Florida um, (laughs) and start creating a pristine wilderness out of it uh, for that very reason, because it becomes this kind of mental anguish uh, that you can't escape from. And it does, does kind of leave a mark. Um, So in that respect, yeah. Um, in terms of the idea that we don't know as much about the world, it seems to me to be a kind of fundamental fact because you know we just keep ex- discovering new species. We discover that plants communicate through you know fungal pathways. We discover all of this You're, stuff about like the You like fungal world, pathways? But, well, 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 I just like that science is really reaffirming everything in my fiction at a very rapid right. rate. That's, uh, so, so, we're, that's we're, uh, we're, <laughs> so. Soon we'll learn that gray caps are a reality. <laughs> right. Right. So, um, but but my point is that. Um, this is why it's so important also uh, not to to, to to maintain habitats beyond the obvious, uh, because there's so much that is getting extinguished before we actually understand it. And I feel right. like if we thought of the planet we live on as being more like an alien planet that we're exploring, we might have more of a sense of that. We might understand that on a more mundane daily basis. So um, I'm going to call up some of these pictures, but while I'm
0: fumbling around with the computer (laughs) um, to distract people from that fumbling, I was wondering if you two could talk about uh, when you do collaborate um, uh, in in, in terms of art and words, how that comes about and and how that happens.
1: Well, I know how it starts. (laughs) I call up Eric (laughs) and I say, would you like to do this impossible thing and could I have it by next week and Eric says no and he hangs up the phone and then I get a call back or an email maybe a week or two later about well maybe I could fit that into my schedule so that's how it starts
2: it's that yes. fairly yes. accurate and I, I've gotten used to it after. <laughs> like, because I say I'm not a person who likes to have surprises that much and I love surprises yes. <laughs> And so yeah, typically from Jeff, I'll get something. Well, could you do this? And my main reaction, wait, I don't even understand this. Um, and I have. And, and one needs an entry point in almost any project. Um, but, but then yeah. uh, what Seth talked about before, one of the fun yeah. things has often really been that Jeff is trying to create worlds that really extend beyond just a printed page. Um, and then he's always come up with ideas how you incorporate these other objects into his work, which is um, illustrations. But what I also liked, it wasn't just my illustrations. There was other items that were also appearing. So it really became multiple creators then becoming mm-hmm. enveloped mm-hmm. Uh, by a world.
1: Mm-hmm. And I must say that, on the latest projects, they've been ones with many moving pieces where I know, I realized later I didn't really give Eric any context <laughs> at all. <laughs> and there was probably like 10 pages of context that should have been given.
0: So so this is the exchange, the, the chat book I was talking about where you were pushing mushrooms. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm curious about how this came about um, and then we can look mm-hmm. at some of the uh, some of the images. Uh, if you wanted to talk at all about what this story yeah, actually is,
1: yeah. well, uh, basically there's a festival uh, in the fantastical city of Ambergris that I created, and. Um, this festival is kind of like an outlet for violence and whatnot, uh, because there's not a lot of civil authority, and so this is like a, a way to kind of like get it all out at once.
0: It's like it's like the purge before the purge movies.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should consider kind of like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, or, or <laughs> renaming it entirely. Uh, but but anyway, so uh, I had the idea to create a festival uh, object that you would get while you're staying at a safe house. Uh, and it would include this little kind of book, which <laughs> is supposed to be kind of uh, educational and yet totally isn't, and has advertising in the back for various businesses in the city, um, and comes with a, a capsule, a little uh, metal capsule, uh, with, uh, which you're supposed to write your name on. And other information, just in case you get the crap beaten out of you, or you lose your your memory from from various uh, spore related incidents. And there's also two mushrooms, um, <laughs> one of which <laughs> is a poison, so you can kill yourself if. if things get too bad during the festival. Presumably and the, not and,
0: actually poison.
1: And No, and the, the other, they're both they're cooking mushrooms, and the other is uh, the antidote. Um, <laughs> and thoughtfully, uh, the, in this box, it doesn't tell you which is which. Um, <laughs> so... Um, and a funny thing about that, I, I sent the, the package to uh, Michael Moorcock, the writer, and uh, got it in a bag full of mushrooms because I figured it would be good packing material. <laughs> and uh, she called me up and she, she, um, she said, Jeff, are these the cooking mushrooms or are these the hallucinogenic ones? Because <laughs> I have dinner to cook and I want to cook the right ones. So, and I'm like, did you get a package with that? Yeah, we got your thing. <laughs> <laughs> It's very. It's quite difficult to get a copy of this. That's not these what her voice days. sounds like. Actually, by the way,
2: I'll also interject a bit here. Again, in terms of this project, so initially it was just to do a chat book. Oh, that's but then right. Jeff again sort of wants to build the world bigger and bigger around the piece. So then it was then actually creating this whole body yeah. of effects that come with it, and then basically yeah. creating an artifact of this fictional world. Are theoretically fictional.
0: And is this is this illustration? I don't know if you can see that. Is that from uh, is that from the exchange or is that from City that's, of City that's the, of Saints and yeah. Advent? And what is that that we're seeing there?
1: <laughs> yes. Why don't you explain yourself, Eric? Because I don't even know what that is. <laughs>
2: um, bird mass figure in a lot of uh, the festival things of Jeff's. <laughs> and at one point he did say. Enough with the bird masks <laughs> right. and your illustrations.
0: So those are those are humans. <laughs> yeah, during the festival of the squid. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And what are they? They're juggling fireworks. Say off fireworks,
2: and one's about to
0: fall off the roof. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and is this also? Uh, this is also from City of Saints and Madmen. Yes.
1: Yes. Um, that is a comic strip. <laughs> yeah, you um, can
2: fill this in if you want. Yeah, in the, lo- in, <laughs> yeah, in the
1: local paper, they have a, a comic that runs. And it's about Helitos and Bobble, um, these, these, this talking squid and, and his friend. And it's a series of various um, things. And for a while on Facebook, we were basically trying to pretend it was a real comic and, and all kinds <laughs> of things like that. So. But we will say, if um, you
2: read, it's absolutely hilarious in terms of the interactions between Helitos and Bobble well at least to my mind yeah um we can also if you <laughs> i'll back write the up, play sometime we'll, it's again the level of sort of background that f- fits into this mm. too is the m cod fan was that who's right. the artist yeah. is a pseudonym for another character in jeff's novel who who's
1: wrote act- a squid monograph yeah
0: yes who is actually obsessed with squid um <laughs> And, so it's uh, a pseudonym for you as a, it's, a, it's a pseudonym for another character yeah. which is a pseudonym for you
1: and, and the actual um, squid monograph is an actual scientific monograph about this imaginary squid that is also hiding a murder plot or a murder story that the scientist is trying to confess, confess to something um, and the weirdest thing is I sent this story around to various magazines uh, and they all rejected it saying they already had something just like it <laughs> uh, refuse refused, refused to believe that that was true it's a,
0: the, um, the, the, the scientific uh, uh, monograph on squid with a murder hidden yeah. in between it is a <laughs> yeah. trope that's been done so yeah. many
1: times. I have uh, my, my and, list of SF tropes. <laughs>
2: right, right, right. And,
1: and this may all seem to those of you who have read the Southern Reach and nothing else like, uh, what does this have to do with it? But um, in actual fact, a lot of these uh, were kind of the early tryouts for some of the themes about animals and, and uh, ecology and whatnot, just well, and in sir, a totally different uh, way.
0: The, 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 the um, uh, theme. Of fungal human interaction is one obviously that comes up in Southern Reach that um, dominates the, yeah. the the Ambergris all of those books. Yeah.
1: The 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 well probably the funniest thing about that funny haha I guess is that uh, I actually found out later that I had a, a fungal uh, infection while I was writing those books. That may have actually so, while have you were influenced. writing the Ambergris. Books? Yes, that's wow. Um, that's, and, uh, <laughs> so you were, it,
0: it, it's like, um, it's like to clarify, uh, uh, gone away at this toxoplasmosis <laughs> when it takes up, but, takes the, over uh, your...
1: but the other thing about it is that uh, after the Southern Reach books, uh, we discovered we had to take uh, part of our house apart and out because they found uh, some form of black mold, not that exact thing, but something like it, not quite as virulent uh, in the walls. Huh. Um, so, you know, you begin to wonder exactly how much your environment is This is, is getting into
0: Legati territory. <laughs> yeah, it's getting of... into,
1: like, too much information.
0: No, no, why. or just, you know, to, um, the problem uh, blaming or, or attributing you. yes. your, your, uh, your creativity to different things. <laughs> um, is, now, is, this is from The Secret Life, is that right?
1: Yeah, uh, the, fir- the other one was the cover, which, but, which is actually kind of a proto-Southern Reach thing, too. Yeah, that one.
0: And what is, um, what's this from?
1: Uh, that was one where Eric just gave me. Uh, I think you gave me this, and well, actually, I made a story out of it. Right. Actually, you yeah. set
2: the because he has kept demanding uh, illustrations from me for his stories. So he said, "Well, it should be turn about is fair yeah. play. Just give me a couple right, right. illustration pieces you've yeah. done, and I'll make a
0: piece out of them."
1: Yeah, and so I did. You did the and, and then of course he gave me this. <laughs> it's like right, well, that it's looks like the end of something story. for sure. Right. But. <laughs>
0: And then uh, are these, I, th- I think, let's see, th- is, that was an ad in... in
1: that, that's a beer label right. uh, for ambergris <laughs> beer, which was actually bottled and, and sold. Um, and I, uh, we like to replicate the things that are successful, so we tried to do a Southern Reach beer. And not to keep going back to this theme, but uh, the brewer <laughs> in, <laughs> in Tallahassee who brewed it... Uh, a strange fungus got into the barrels <laughs> and wow. turned it sour. I'm not kidding. So, look, it's not me. It's that it's, that it's everywhere. <laughs> okay? It's not
0: that everything you touch.
1: Yes, yeah, so I want to make that quite clear.
0: Um, and then what are these? Yeah, what are those?
2: <laughs> that was... I know, just kidding. Part of the background was t T-shirt of related to ambergris because there's yeah. squid tentacles in there. And then the other was part of a project yeah. that sort of was a side project.
1: Yeah. The, the rule seems to be that um, you do more product placement for your obscure cult projects than you do for your <laughs> commercials. I was going to ask about that watch. actually, but
0: and so this is um, this is a hint to fans that if they're if they're true if they're true fans of, of your art um, and your fiction, this is a,
1: a, a fan of the books who who got Eric's art tattooed. Yeah. And what's funny is with the first collaboration we ever did, Eric said to me, you know, I'll know I've been successful if someone tattoos this art. There you go. On their leg or arm or whatever it is. Well, I was that even <laughs> near where
2: I was in Portsmouth, yeah. there was a tattoo artist. and he mm. goes, Oh, your, your stuff would make great
0: tattoos. Yeah. So... Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I you know, it's
2: copyright free. You can do it uh, with impunity without feeling you have to creative, creative Common License.
0: <laughs> so, um, I, I'll turn back on the, the Southern Reach slideshow, but um, one thing that I was curious about is the fact that um, that level of multi-layered involvement is absent from the Southern Reach Trilogy. Um, you know, if you, you pick up City of Saints and Madmen, and it's impossible to, it's it, it starts again at zero, you know, a dozen times, there are different yeah. types of texts within there, there are all these extra textual things, and... The, the 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 Southern Reach trilogy exists as a
1: text, essentially. That, that's a young man's game, uh, <laughs> and I was uh, I was so scarred working with Eric. Just no, kidding. Um, well, actually, it was a very deliberate decision because I had that decision to make at the beginning. There's all kinds of found objects you could create for the Southern Reach, um, and uh, the problem was that in doing these texts, uh, what I wanted to do was create novels where the experimentation is largely invisible. And so I felt like creating, you know, like found objects, like a picture of a lighthouse and everything actually in with the novel, embedding them, uh, would be a bad (laughs) idea. Now, as you can see, we did a lot of stuff outside of that. Um, But what what I mean by invisible experimentation, uh, if you read Annihilation, the dialogue from Annihilation occurs again in authority There's several times where the main character is walking through hallways, and there's incidental dialogue, and another time he's in a bar. All the incidental dialogue is repurposed from annihilation. And so the idea is that you get this sense of deja vu, potentially, but you don't know where it's coming from. Uh, And it's kind of a hint that things are not going very well in the Southern Reach. And so there's a lot of hidden things uh, in there that are supposed to kind of push your buttons and make you feel a certain way that you could call kind of experimental. Uh, like, control in the second book is continually walking down hallways, and you get that scene, but then you don't get the scene <laughs> where he actually <laughs> goes into the room. You get it when he recaps it later for his superior. So there's, there's ways in which the scenes are structured and piled on top of each other that uh, is fairly experimental, but again, meant to be invisible.
0: And, and um, the, uh, on the subject of control, I assume that that's a reference to, to Jean Le Carre's uh, to control in the smiling novels?
1: Actually, control is like a term of art uh, in, in, in secret agencies. Uh, but yeah, that would be the most most famous example.
0: So. And did you want readers to draw... Because they're, the, the control that is in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy yeah. and, and, and this control are sort of polar opposites in, yeah. in a lot of ways in <laughs> terms of the amount of control they have, the, the extent to which they're in control of their emotions... Um, what were you trying to do?
1: I wanted them, I wanted, uh, and I went back and forth on whether to use that and then finally the character just basically told me that that's what he was going to do. He was going to be, he was going to be control. So I I ceded control to control. And, uh, (laughs) but basically I did want readers to read that book that way. I wanted them to read it like a slow burn espionage novel except with the bureaucracy replacing some of the espionage parts, the okay. the
0: the the um, authority. Yes, authority. Right,
1: right. Uh, and and uh, the only thing I read about authority is that the publisher didn't put on the outside something about absurdist dark humor because, for readers who are coming from Annihilation, a, a certain portion of them maybe didn't see the dark humor of some of the stuff because they weren't they weren't looking for it. They weren't right. expecting it. So. Right,
0: right. Um, before I open it up, there are a couple of things I, I want to touch on. Uh, I, these out here are. Um, this is Finch, one of the books in your Ambergris um, series. Um, but then this is Wonder Book, uh, and the subtitle is an illustrated guide to creating imaginative fiction. Um, and this is the Steampunk User's Manual. Um, it, 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 it. And when that, when one looks at the totality of what you've published, um, you seem to have a deep engagement with uh nurturing creativity in other writers um uh, and i was wondering if you could talk about that and whether you viewed that as an essential part of the writer's role in society
1: um well i must say also i've become not just because eric's a great artist but also superstitious about not having him in projects so he's in all of those projects as well which i did Um. not even know (laughs) (laughs) but but
0: um so what does that say he's not in the southern reach um, his art is what he ch- is because i consulted right him. right 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 okay right um,
2: I would uh, also say, Arf cheney is obviously named after our good friend matt cheney
1: i uh, i think he probably hopes not but <laughs> 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 i actually debated not uh not using that name because i <laughs> because, because I of Matt matter because of dick because matt right <laughs> i don't i don't think about the other one <laughs> um uh, no, but getting back to the idea of collaboration, um, growing up, for some reason, I always had the idea that a writer was a person of letters, somebody who did all kinds of things and all kinds of projects. And uh, I started out writing poetry, I started out editing literary magazines before I moved on to fiction, and it's always just seemed kind of natural to operate as kind of a, a part of a community and to express that through these books and two of the other guiding principles that uh, me and my wife have had like in editing anthologies and working on these books is to kind of heal that divide between genre and mainstream because there's tons of fantastical literature on the mainstream side and there's there's tons of stuff that's more realistic on the genre side and there's often very arbitrary reasons why these things are separated and so in all of our projects it's not just community it's also bringing together and kind of repatriating things that belong together even in wonder book uh, even in the steampunk user's manual, although that's a more uh, specific topic, um, but all of these things feed back into my own projects. I got so much out of working with people on Wonderbook that wound up leading to other projects, uh, informing my own fiction. I must admit, while I was working on Authority and on Acceptance, there were parts of Wonderbook that I had forgotten. That I went back and reread some of the guest <laughs> essays and stuff right. <laughs> to get myself out of some jams. Um, um, so, so it's it's kind of it's a two way street. I see it as if you don't if you don't bring that in, you don't, you don't, uh, you suffer yourself as right. well. So it's not that it's necessarily selfish, but there is a component where it's also uh, continuing education.
0: And, um, and, um, in, in terms of that aspect of your work, um, and editing and anthologizing, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about the project you're working on now.
1: Um, I can, and I've shared a little bit of it with, uh, with Eric, uh, just, uh, you know, to to get a reaction, and and also because he has to be involved with every project. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so it's a big book of science fiction. It's 100 years of science fiction uh, from around 1900 to 2000. And it's a much more fraught project than some of our previous ones because most of the editors who have done this kind of project before have been from within the science fiction field, whereas doing an anthology like we did with The Weird, there are people like Alberto Manguel and others who came from outside of genre, and so the selections they made were, were much more outside of genre. So what we've come down to in, in lo- looking at basically a, a final uh, table of contents for this book is something that's much more radical than we, we thought it would be. <laughs> uh, you know, we were, we were going after uh, very deep, rich uh, veins of uh, Latin American science fiction, uh, Russian science fiction, and things like that, and in doing so, uh, that means there's a lot of there's a fair amount of what you might call classic American science fiction that may not be in the book, um, or that doesn't stack up as well. Um, and when you actually look at the totality, when you have access to translators and translations, other things become apparent. Um, there are many writers, um, and this kind of changed my view of like what you can write about uh, to some degree. I, I would still feel like anybody can write about anything from a, if they have the right perspective and the right skill set and everything else, but. You know, if you have Latin American writers writing things set in Latin American countries from their point of view, and then you have American writers who are writing their version of, from, of Latin American countries that they've never been to, it becomes pretty obvious which story you're going to include. Uh, so that there's, there's that aspect of it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of weird to me that we have five or six translations of stories that have never been translated into English before that stack up favorably to the best of the English language stuff that we have in there.
0: You mean for five or six different stories? Yeah, aesthetic. different stories.
1: Right. And um, it's weird. I mean, obviously, we did some research and cross-triangulated so to cut down the odds of what we were getting translated not turning out to be good. But it, it, it leads me to believe, because there are so many authors we didn't have time to investigate, that there's a vast wealth of other material out there. Um, for us English language readers, uh, I really wish I read in other languages, uh, that that, that hasn't been part of the discussion, hasn't been repatriated into the kind of tradition of the fantastic or or science fiction. And so I'm kind of excited about that and also kind of dismayed by it.
0: Do do you think that's different in science fiction than uh, either in other genres of fiction or just fiction generally?
1: I do think it's a little different because... You mentioned sci-fi being a ghetto. To some extent, that's not true anymore. But it, but it definitely has hampered. You know, you're not going to find a lot of science. You're going to find a much more fantasy outside of like genre imprints and whatnot. Uh, and you're going to find, uh, you know, people who consider themselves conversant in world literature. Uh, who know the fantastical side of things as long as well as the mainstream literary, but maybe don't know the sci-fi so side. W- w-
0: would, so, with would like Borges, would he be someone on the fantastical side or on the uh, both? Um, right. I,
1: I see him as a precursor to Ballard in some ways because right. he manipulates time and space in the same kind of way. You can almost see Ballard like taking notes on Borges and then you know applying it to his his own genius. Right. Um, so we will uh, hopefully have a Borges story in there. Um, we'll hopefully have a Silvina uh, Ocampo story and um, uh, several Soviet-era writers. So that was the most fascinating thing. Uh, we were reading one story that I liked a lot and I thought was very serious and Anne said, I don't know that this is a serious an- story. And an being your uh, wife. Uh, an- an- Vandimer, and, my wife and who's co-editor. I don't know that this is a serious story. And, uh, but she still liked it. And I was like, well, why don't we check? Why don't we get a retranslation <laughs> of it? And it turned out that it was an absurdist story about an encounter with aliens that had been rendered as a serious story <laughs> by the translator, who um, apparently had not done fiction before. And so then you realize there's another barrier. You're reading a lot of stuff, a lot of Soviet science fiction translated by Macmillan in the 80s, and they did a really good job of getting a lot of it into print, but you then have to backtrack, and you have to research and actually see if you're even reading a version of the story that's accurate um, in terms of tone and everything. So,
0: Um, I think we'll open it up. Uh, to the audience. We have two microphones. Um, If you have a question, come up to the microphone. Please introduce yourself um, because we are recording this and then we'll know who you are so we can come after you later. Oh Wait, you're recording
1: this? Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, But yeah, make your way up to one of the microphones. Shy audience. (laughs) All right, there we go.
2: Uh, My name is Dan Schmidt, and I've uh, been a fan of Jeff's work for a while, and I was very ambivalent uh, reading the Southern Reach books uh, because I both uh, desperately wanted all these mysteries to be explained, and I also really liked them being mysteries and wanted them to stay mysteries, and I was wondering how you chose how much to reveal, and were there things that you vacillated about whether they should be explained in the end or not?
1: Well, I mean, there's two things I knew. One, that I hate the ends of trilogies where your main character suddenly stumbles upon some information or has a eureka moment, and uh, they solve the whole thing. Uh, I think that's kind of a cop-out. And then when you're dealing with something where you're trying to describe an encounter with with something unknowable, it seems like a cop-out to give a full answer. So the first thing I thought of is, what can I do in terms of the character arcs? And so, what I tried to do is make the character arcs as complete as possible for each book. Basically, the biologist story kind of ends with the first book. Control's story, even though he's in the third book, kind of ends with the third book, the second book. Um, and so, you get a sense of closure, I hope, from that. Um, but I did go back and forth on it. I had several different layers of reveal, and I just trusted my editor at FSG to to, to tell me what made the most sense. And the thing that's really funny is that I do actually think there are a fair number of answers in the third book, but some readers tell me that they have been made so paranoid by authority <laughs> <laughs> that they don't actually believe the answers that they read in the third book. You, um, mean, you mean, so e- even though the third book is not written
0: from within Southern Reach and is not, does not have the same paranoid tone, they assume that are, you're, you're misleading them because of what came before?
1: Um, yeah, I've had that reaction. It's like, like literally, it's kind of colonized them in terms of the paranoia. And I mean, I, I kind of understand that there's, there is a deep paranoia in it that comes from the method acting that I did, I think, because I tried to be control for a long time. I broke into my own house to create one scene. Um, that must um, have been
0: so much fun for your wife.
1: <laughs> well, she wasn't home at the time. I waited until she wasn't there. <laughs> Though it was kind of weird, because the neighbor kid uh, saw me. Um, LAUGHTER Go in the back door, and I was actually kind of creeping, like, like in a cartoon, which I don't know why I was doing that. <laughs> so I look over, exactly and there's the, there's, the, the, yeah, there's the neighbor kid, and I had to just kind of go, hi, hi, <laughs> and then smash. <laughs> 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 but it saved me a whole week, uh, breaking into my own house, as opposed to trying to imagine breaking into someone's house. Um, what did that insurance claim look like? Uh... <laughs> But yeah, so, um, so, so that's, that's, yeah.
2: I'll also add, the way answers are given in the third book is not a traditional science fiction method, so it's mm. not like an info dump. It's basically coming almost tangential mm. that you actually get this information.
1: Right, it's not the main point of a lot of the scenes. It's mm-hmm. like in the margins of them, yeah. which is a risk, but it does also mean that I really trust the reader to to put it together. So, so um,
0: what would you say is the tr- what's the traditional scientific uh, science fiction way of revealing inform- that that you were referring Plus to?
2: It tends to be the quote unquote reveal
1: at the very end.
2: Close. To, well, you have a dénouement or something right, after right. that, but you have a very defined understanding arising. Right.
1: It's almost oddly like a traditional mystery where they all go into the parlor and you know, the detective solves the case. or you know, mm-hmm. goes, It's weirdly like that, it, not quite as formally put that way. Although sometimes I wish, there are some science fiction writers where I wish they would just do that. <laughs> um, but, um, but the frustration here is that uh, I'm actually working on a novel now with very traditional structure and traditional closure. I can do it. I can do it. I just didn't fit these books. So so you
0: claim. I'll believe it when I see it. There's no evidence of that yet. Yes. Hi,
1: I'm Josh Goldman. Uh, First, I want to say three things I liked about your books. One, I liked the way the characters got revisited. You know, where you had a negative view of, like, the director and the lighthouse keeper, and then they came back and and my favorite from, I think it's Saints and Madmen, is where you reveal sort of like the plot uh, ending in
0: the bibliography. Oh, <laughs> thank you.
1: Yeah. Uh, the question I have is, from the beginning, you were talking about views of science. How do the... I mean, we never see what's going on for the S&S Brigade from mm. their point of view. And are they as... You know, are are they actually doing some science there, or are they just totally kooky? Right. Uh, the science and science brigade uh, is this group that's using both science and <laughs> and um, paranormal like uh, recording of activity to try to figure something out on, on the forgotten coast while. All this other stuff is beginning to happen,
0: and it's never—it's never totally revealed what they're trying to figure
1: out. Right, it's never totally revealed. Uh, I got the idea from this uh, stone garden built by this madman in Miami, this Lithuanian guy who did it as like a as a memorial to this girlfriend who had kicked him out, and that's why he left Lithuania. Uh, but anyway, uh, it has some very interesting aspects of like. Uh, during eclipses and stuff, the way the the, the, the uh, thing is set up, it kind of shows some kind of knowledge of, like, constellations and all kinds of things. But anyway, when I went there, there was one group of, of physicists taking readings, and there was one group of psychics taking <laughs> readings. And I thought that was so interesting that I would file that away, um, and, like, where do those two things uh, meet, you know? And, and that, that, I thought, would be an interesting way to also talk about uh, pseudoscience, but... It's true that I, I didn't quite tell you what they were doing. I'm working on, and I think that's probably because I, I'm working on a novella right now, that's set like a day or two before Area X gets created, and really totally uh, uh, involves the, the, the SNS Brigade. Uh, not only that, but I could totally see doing a separate, longer piece just, just on them. Just on the SNS Brigade, yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. Um, very much enjoyed The Southern Reach. Uh, marvelously creepy. My question is a uh, third book called Acceptance. Uh, it seems to be so much thematically uh, with all the characters about um, not exactly grief, but uh, regrets, things they would have done differently, wished had turned out differently, didn't, changes that are out of their control. Um, I'm wondering if you were uh, going through any kind of either personal or societal mm-hmm. level grieving process during writing the novel um well i have to say there was one emotional thing in that i thought it might be the last time in a major way that i wrote about uh the landscape of wilderness in north florida and so i wanted i really felt that deeply and then that kind of came out i think through the characters so in a weird way the landscape was fused with emotion in my mind and then it came out through the characters um by that time, though, I was very invested in these characters. I was, in, I was invested in the psychologist, um, perhaps most of all, uh, who I, I thought I just, I don't, I don't know why, but I just um, identified with aspects of her life. And I, um, I had a hard time stopping writing about, it, about her. And so as these characters were coming towards the end um, of the cycle of the, the books, uh, it, it was this kind of, I was also writing them during the winter and there was a clarity to the winter that, that, that year that, that kind of added an emotional thing to it as well. So there were kind of all these environmental things that were kind of kind of coalescing in my mind and then just kind of coming out in the prose. It's,
0: it's interesting that you say the psychologist was the character that you associated with, because certainly in Annihilation, I didn't view her as a very sympathetic character, to yeah. say the least. She was probably, in some ways the villain of annihilation. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, no. I always planned that 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 your view of all of these, most of these characters would change to some degree, and I didn't realize how much the psychologist would change. Um, the biologist uh, was the weirdest one because I could write in that voice forever. I could I could write reams and I could write novels and novels and novels. But she only had so much story, if that makes any right. sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, in terms of, like, personal stuff, there's, there's stuff in her background in, in Annihilation that, that comes out of my own life. Like, we had an overgrown uh, swimming pool uh, in the back of our yard, uh, and I wanted to be a biologist growing up uh, and kind of use that overgrown pool as kind of like a little ecosystem I could research and whatnot. So. Right. Yeah,
0: uh, either, either side. Yeah. <laughs>
2: So, uh, a lot... who are you? Oh, my name is Adam Conway. Nice. Um, so, a lot of the uh, uh, the second novel um, seemed to be uh, concerned with language and sort of people trying people's inability to name things properly and ending up in kind of a logical cul-de-sac because of that. And there was also sort of a theme of of names and people taking out multiple names and the psychologist having multiple names and. Over the course of the novels, I felt more sympathetic with that character, depending on how she was named in the, in the chapter breaks, and I, was, I thought that was a really interesting sort of the inability, the inability of language to encapsulate something was something, an interesting topic for a writer to take on when that's sort of kind of undermining the whole idea of writing in a way, and I, I was curious where, where that came from.
1: Um. You know, so much of that kind of thing just came through the characters. I mean, there there are scenes, though, like the one I read, I mean, which I kind of stripped some things out because it doesn't read well otherwise, um, where I just recall, you know, conversations in workplace settings uh, and the confluence of being in a workplace setting and, being, and working maybe on a really terrible project that kind of makes you think illogically, but doing it with people that you trust or respect or have some relationship to. Um, and so there's this weird kind of combination of variables that come together to, 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 to where well, you're making sense of things on one level and things totally don't make sense on another. Um, but a lot of that is just kind of subconscious, I think, coming out. Yep. Hey, my name's Tony McMillan. Um, There's a lot of creepy stuff throughout the trilogy, and I really enjoyed that. But um, I think the creepiest thing for me was the hypnosis. And I'm wondering two things. Uh, First off, what was the inspiration behind using hypnosis so much? And also, have you ever been, or would you be willing to be hypnotized to see what would happen? I have a weird... uh
0: you sure he's not right now? I have, a,
1: I have a weird thing about like hypnosis or taking magic mushrooms or anything I think might alter um, <laughs> every reality, uh, which is I I don't really want to do it. Um, the hypnosis was meant to be kind N- of... Now sp- our dinner plans are ruined. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you, that's right. You haven't told the dinner plans. So I don't know. <laughs> what's, um, uh, but I actually... It started off as something to show the paranoia... Of the southern reach. Uh, and I debated halfway through Annihilation whether it was going to seem to be effective or just something that they were trying out. I finally, re- I finally thought, well, hypnosis doesn't really work this way in the real world, but my feeling is something to do with the first expedition brought back information that allowed them to, to, to kind of be more successful with this kind of mind control. But I also meant for it to be kind of a metaphor for the fragmentation in our world because, I mean, I've seen many times on social media somebody who had one ideology suddenly be colonized by some idea or a meme, and then for the next six months, there's somebody else entirely. Uh, and so that's a form of hypnosis as far as I'm concerned, but it's not really that interesting in books to deal with the Internet. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, and it, it, it wasn't as interesting to me as layering in like, the old and the new technologies in there. Uh, I will say that the books were reviewed by an erotic hypnosis website, um, which sometimes reviews uh, novels and apparently... I'm sorry,
0: an erotic hypnosis website? <laughs>
1: um, for, for people who find hypnosis erotic, um, and they, they sometimes review novels, um, and they review any novel with hypnosis, whether it's meant to be erotic or not, as an erotic hypnosis novel. Um, so Annihilation is apparently a great uh, erotic hypnosis novel, and Authority is not. Just, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> you can find anything on the internet hi uh, my name is
2: Allison Hoke and I'm going to ask kind of a typical writing question mm-hmm. um, maybe working on a project of my own but um, it sounds like you've put in so much uh, thought and depth in terms of all the layers that you're trying to put into a whole trilogy um, I'm wondering how much do you plan out the novels that you're writing um, like how detailed do you get or is some of it just discovery for you, a combination? Um, it's always something I'm curious about uh, for well, writers tackling large projects.
1: I should, shouldn't admit this, but when I agreed to the three-book deal um, with my agent and publisher, I didn't actually know if it was going to be three books or five. But I did have... But <laughs> I did have... I did have a general idea of the overall story. And I just didn't know how it was going to settle. And then authority ate up like 30 years of stuff. And it was clear that certain things just needed to be summarized and not actually stated. When I actually worked on authority, I had like a vague outline, which to say I knew this is vaguely how many days he's going to be there before the shit hits the fan, Um, And this is vaguely what he would have to do as new director coming in, whether I'm going to dramatize all those scenes or not. I knew this is kind of the procedure you'd have if you had a new director coming into a place. So those are basically my scenes um, or some version of those. Uh, And so then I, I started editing those to like, these are the scenes I actually need. And then these are the people who will be in the room at the time. And then it's kind of like a director who says, "Okay, you know your motivation we're gonna shoot this and you're gonna create the dialogue. So by the time I come to write the scene, there's all kinds of things I don't know. And especially with a bureaucratic novel like that, um, there's all kinds of things that changed as I was writing the scenes because there's something about the (laughs) layered bureaucracy of that place that was actually kind of like twisting everything as I wrote it. Um, In fact, there was one point where I was sitting in a coffee (laughs) shop and uh, this guy came up to me and the guy he was with who I also knew for some reason didn't want to speak to me, but I'd seen them up paying at the counter. So he came up to me. The other guy went behind on the balcony. And I just kept writing while this guy is talking to me. And I used that as, as part of a scene involving Whitby that later changed. Um, so sometimes things in your environment um, just, kind of <laughs> just kind of, you know, if it's the right kind of novel, and it changes it as it goes along. So you have to leave enough room in there and enough, uh, enough chance for unexpected life but you have to have—I at least have to have some kind of structure to, 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 to work from to begin with. I don't know if that helps.
0: T- talking about when you signed the three-book deal, one of the really unusual things about Southern Reach is that it was three separate books published in one calendar year, which um, uh, you know a lot of publishers would be wary of doing. Um, I'm curious about how that came about and whether you and FSG were sort of confident all the way through that, that that was the right way to handle this. And also, to, to, to publish, uh, you know, the first time this came out in hardcover was after all three paperbacks mm-hmm. were published, which is also obviously unusual.
1: Yeah, and of course, you know, now, someone who encounters the series for the first time doesn't really have a sense of that because all the pieces are in place, including right. the hardcover, as far as they know, it was published first. Um, actually, there were, there were three offers. Um, they were all good offers, but the FSG letter came with the whole plan. Huh. Every detail of the plan, exactly what they were going to do and how they were going to do it, why they were going to make three books work in a year. Uh, it was the most brilliant offer letter that I've ever received. I mean, I just looked at it and it was like there was a glow coming off of it, like I was in a <laughs> David Lynch movie or something, but a, but you know, a, an upbeat one. You sure. And, uh, <laughs> you sure all of those upbeat David Lynch movies. Um, you
0: sure there wasn't some form of hypnosis? Yeah. And they, in oh, there? oh, there definitely
1: was. It was like. F-S-G. No, um, but... Um, um, but they, they... The main thing is follow-through. Um, they committed to following through on these things. I'm, I'm fairly sure that even if the first one had tanked, they would have been working just as hard for the second and the third. And thankfully, they didn't, and they had traction. But um, But they they did just so many smart things. They had, like, internet magicians behind the scenes. They had, I mean, they did so many things that you didn't even see that kind of affected how people saw the books and whatnot. Like, like um, what type of thing? I don't really want to go into details, <laughs> <Okay>. uh, but <laughs> but let's just say that they're very savvy.
0: So so, so am, I, am I remembering correctly, it was February, May, and November? Mm, Is that right? September, yeah. September? Yeah. So um, was there a moment after uh, Annihilation was published in February where you sort of felt like you were on the edge of a cliff and holy shit, like the next two books might totally fail if this one doesn't work?
1: Well, usually what happens the second book in a trilogy, even if the first one has been successful, is susceptible because it is the middle book. It's not going to provide all the answers. And if it comes out a year after the first book, um, the whole publishing landscape can have changed. So I was I, I was actually fairly happy after Annihilation came out and did well because I thought, wow, Authority actually has a chance. Probably it's going to get dinged a little bit, but we'll still have momentum going into the into the fall. And I had committed to touring behind all of these, and they had committed to sending me out on tour, so I, I spent five and a half months on the road last year.
0: Um, so three separate and, tours?
1: Uh, more like four or five. Um, huh. I mean, because there were different literary festivals and things that were like in between books, and and, whatnot.
0: and what and what was the what, or was there any drop off in sales between the first second and third
1: um, well there 's always going to be a little bit because there 's be people who there 's some people who think annihilation stands on its own they don 't really want to know there are those who who read annihilation and want to read further, and then there are those who absolutely hate annihilation and never and want to right. say my name ever again <laughs> um, and so actually, for a while at the very beginning, when I was still reading Amazon reviews, it would be like. Five stars, oh, it's a brilliant classic based on Lovecraft. No, it's not based on Lovecraft, you bastard. And, uh, then, one, and then one star, I hope he burns in hell and all of his things with him. Um, and it just go back and forth like that. It was literally, it was so weird. There were like no three-star reviews. It was just like one star, five star, one star, five star. And gradually the five-star reviews were beating out the one-star reviews. And then after a while, I got too scarred to take, keep track of it anymore. Um, but the, the other books um, are still selling very well. In fact, if the if Annihilation hadn't like kind of just become this kind of dreadnought, um, the other two books would have been enough uh, to, 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 to be an order of magnitude uh, uh, more than anyone could expect. Um, so there's a little bit of a drop-off, but not really that much.
0: And, and I know uh, you said that, that Paramount's moving forward with an Annihilation movie. Mm-hmm. Are they thinking of that as the first movie in a trilogy? Or are they, they are. They, they are. are.
1: Um, and it's kind of wise because they are three very different books, and I could certainly see three different directors, three different uh, script writers. Um, the second one, you know, needing more of that kind of espionage touch, right. um, and so on and so forth. Uh, and right now, uh, I guess it's no secret because Alex Garland is going around uh, doing promotion for uh, Ex Machina, his new movie, and he's the one writing and directing Annihilation, uh, and he's finished a, a screenplay. and. There's quite a bit of movement on the movie that I can't talk about, but um, but it's 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 so close. Uh, when I but hypnotize
0: him <laughs> afterwards, I'll get all the it's details. It's so close to you. that
1: I don't even want to think about it.
0: <laughs> Wait, is, there, is there a projected date already?
1: I can't talk about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I can only oh. talk about whatever Alex Garland says while on tour. <laughs> right. Uh, okay.
0: More. I have more questions, but are there more audience questions? Um, all right. Well, one uh, other thing I just wanted I wanted to touch on is um, uh, I was struck, I guess, after the fact, after I had finished all three books, about the ways in which there's um, a range of um, racial perspectives, sexual perspectives that felt um, completely natural and integrated in a way um, that I oftentimes don't experience in fiction. I, I, I just recently finished David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks, and, uh, which I really enjoyed, but um, I had to go back and think afterwards about whether there were characters that were not Caucasian or not in heterosexual relationships. Um, and I was wondering if that was something that you sort of consciously decided that you wanted to do, present that array of perspectives, and also whether the way that those perspectives were revealed sometimes, um, uh, why you chose to do it in the way you did. So oftentimes you would know a character for hundreds of pages and then find out that he or she was Hispanic, or um, which I found... Uh, Fascinating because it made me confront my own expectations and, and my own, what I was bringing to the character.
1: Well, once I decided to make them uh, nameless for various reasons having to do with Area X and how that embeds them in the landscape, I also decided not to, in Annihilation, give them physical characteristics. Uh, because they were all women, because I, I see a lot of judgment um, on physical attributes that way. I thought it would be more interesting to have them be judged solely on what they say, do, and think. And then I thought it would be interesting not to reveal their ethnicities until the second book for that very reason, that you would have formed that mental picture and then you would be jolted out of it, with a secondary idea that that, along with some other things, would jolt you out of the mood of annihilation because authority is such a different book. so there's that. Um, I have written about uh, non-white characters for a long time. All of my far future uh, stories, uh, including in Venice Underground, uh, the characters are not white. It doesn't make sense for a future that's all white. <laughs> um, and uh, it just ha- hasn't been probably noticed as much. I don't know right. why.
0: Well, no, I mean, um,
1: I, I guess I noticed it mainly because I
0: hadn't. Noticed it in some yeah. senses, and also because, like, with in uh, authority with control, you find out things about him and and about the psychologist's personal relationships right. um, that uh, uh, are fairly along their development as characters. Right. right. Yeah. So, um,
1: yeah, that's that's true. Um, you know, so part of it is just that, you know, this is who this character is, and this is who I'm going to write about. Part of it is, you know people that I've known that I'm using little pieces, bits and pieces of along with my own imagination to create a character. Um, part of it is definitely that a few years back I read something about you know, audience and who your audience is and I wanted to make sure that I did a better job of, of, um, of writing books for a wide audience for everybody. Um, and I think that, that has, has actually re- really resonated. I keep, I keep getting people saying, Thank you for doing this, and I keep telling them, don't thank people for things you should already have. Um, but uh, but it is definitely something that has has struck a chord.
0: Thank you for doing what type of what type of thing?
1: For for having a a, a, a character who, and I never really reveal it, who may be bisexual or and is definitely uh, or maybe lesbian, uh, having a diversity of characters, not killing off. The black character third from last <laughs> at the end of the third, you know what I mean? That that kind of thing. Right, right. Um and, and part of that is also a narrative thing. It's it's something that because in movies it's become so common, it's something that you sadly expect and therefore it actually works against the 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 plot right. in a way. Right. In addition to the obvious other considerations.
0: Any other audience questions? Anything else you guys want to talk about before we before we disembark? Eric, you look pensive.
1: Well, I was wondering if you had other examples. Yeah.
0: Well, well, actually,
2: I'll bring up maybe the first time that the ethnicity reveal has really mm-hmm. waited till a second novel. Oh. I mean, because you do get, like, mm-hmm. Robert Heinlein revealed partway through one of his novels that a character was black, which has always been something that Chip Delaney has really talked about was very formative for him, him. him in thinking about science fiction. Right. But this is really much uh, delayed sort of uh, information in that context.
0: So uh, you're, you're asking if I have other examples of how that? Happens. No, that's oh, Eric. Oh, oh, actually, oh,
1: if he, but no. but either of you. I mean, uh, you're talking about other examples of, of science and whatnot mm-hmm. that you'd had that. No. Yes? No, no, no. Okay. I, I was saying more.
2: You, you mentioned being uh-huh. pensive, and that's why I was thinking about the question of ethnicity, right. and again, how this had played out previously in, in science novel. fiction, more generally, or novels in general too. I mean, that's I think a question that cuts across any genre.
1: Right. But you know there are there are ways of of writing these characters in other ways that I couldn't possibly um, write them. I love that uh, book Americana um, by uh, that Nigerian-born writer. Um,
0: uh, yeah. Uh, Adichie. Yeah
1: yeah. Yeah, um, and it's a book I could never write. I'm really happy about that. I really am happy that I can read books and think I could never write this. And this is an amazing look at at uh, race relations in the U.S. and everything else and has a complexity to it, Um,
0: so. She's an incredible writer. Um, uh, So uh, the last question, I guess, then is, uh, you mentioned tonight that this was probably the last time you were gonna write about the Florida wilderness. Why is that?
1: Well, I mean, I just, um, you know, when you're writing this, I was writing this book, and I had no idea how the books would do. When When I wrote Annihilation, you know, I had bronchitis, I had had dental surgery that had led to bronchitis, and I I was out of my mind, and I just basically wrote this thing on automatic pilot, and then slept the rest of the day, and it, it was done in like four weeks, and I handed it to my wife, and I I said, is this a novel, or is this about four women just kind of wandering around this wilderness that happens <laughs> to be the hiking trail that I've done for the last 14 mo- uh, years, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Sands Tunnel Tower, and... Um, <laughs> And uh, so I didn't, you know, I didn't have any expectation. And so when I was writing the third book, I still had no expectation. I mean, I, I thought it's possible, even though it, 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 it was remote, that they might even get to the third book if the first one didn't do well. And what that would mean for my career. I mean, I've had so mean, many FSG careers... might
0: not get to the third book? Yeah, I mean, they committed
1: to it. But, you know, you, in the back right. of your head, yeah, you yeah. always have, if the sales are really bad, who knows what's going to happen. And, and I'm writing this while, also while Annihilation is, you know, beginning to get advanced reviews. I'm still finishing off the other book. And and so you're kind of in this space where you just don't know what's going to happen.
0: So so uh, that I, I guess I lied when I said the last question. Because um, <laughs> uh, I was curious about that. So you were not completely done with the three books by the time Annihilation was being sent out, essentially to...
1: Yeah, so I had to kind of block myself off huh. from... I mean, and the movie deal was made while I was writing Authority, which actually worked because Authority was kind of, in my mind, as I was writing it, a cinematic book. So I began to think about what a very intricate layered movie might look like. Right. If it had hit if that news had hit when I was writing Acceptance, which was a very different book, it would have been disastrous. Right. It would have been very difficult for me mentally. But it to, hit before Acceptance. But it hit before, so it worked very well for authority. Right. Um, but you
0: and you didn't have that in your head still while we're No, I didn't.
1: I didn't what I had in my head is that this this, you know, is that that I'm at the very limits of my endurance. I'm getting the book that I want <laughs> done done. But you know there was a there was a point where i was writing the last scene which is not the last scene in the book but the last scene i wrote for the book where i felt something kind of go like this in my in my brain like like something was switching off or was trying to fire and wasn't firing and i didn't know if that was a temporary thing or not so it felt like i might have writer's block for a long time after this what was I, the last scene you wrote now? No, No, no.
0: Oh. You said the last scene you wrote wasn't the last scene in the book.
1: It was a scene where um, uh, the lighthouse keeper has this kind of vision um, that's kind of occurring because of what's beginning to kind of take him over. And then after that he has a conversation with a little girl whose name will be Uh, redacted so it doesn't give you any spoilers (laughs) Um, which is the last time that he's gonna see that 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 person who has become kind of close to him and I couldn't get the vision right and I had this thing I'd bought this book of miracles from Tashin books which um, is basically about people trying to record scientific phenomena that they thought was supernatural which kind of fit uh, you know, because it's all midi- middle, mid-ages, middle a- medieval uh, paintings of like comets and things like that. Uh, and so I just basically opened the book to a page, pointed to a picture, and I said, you're going to just, Jeff Vandermeer, you're just going to write this image. You're going to describe this effing image, and somewhere along there the engine's going to come back on. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just described that image, uh, and then it did. After about a paragraph, it clicked back on, and I had the whole scene in my head, and the novel was done. So, uh, But it was, it was a near thing. Um. I'm glad you finished. <laughs> well, I could have always <laughs> pretended to finish. Yes. Oh, this is where I was supposed to end.
0: <laughs> um. uh. Well, thank you both again so much. Um, Eric, at some point, uh, I'd like to get you down here to talk about your scientific Mm -hmm. work, um, which I also find fascinating. Um, We do have, or Harvard Bookstore does have um, books for sale right outside. Um, buy them. Harvard Bookstore is an independent bookstore. You should support your independent bookstores. Uh, Jeff will be around to sign them. Am um, I signing
1: down here or out there? Or I think probably out there. Out there. Okay, I'll sign yeah, out there. I think there's yeah, a, a table talking. set up okay. out there.
0: Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank you. The Communications Forum will be back in the fall with a great new slate of programs. Thanks.